I want to speak to you today about the anguish of an aging pastor. I'm not speaking about myself, but uh, um, I want to look at 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. And uh, this is Paul's epistle to Timothy. And he says, This you know that all, all in Asia has turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 16, But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase more unto godliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Watch this. Hamenaeus and Philetus are of the sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of, of, of some. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14, it says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You must also beware of him, for he greatly resisted our words. And finally, in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 9, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. The second epistle of Paul to Timothy is my, one of my favorite epistles. It's a no-holds-barred, uh, bare-knuckle, unadulterated epistle. And this was written shortly after Paul's own departure so he's holding nothing back. And Paul does something in this epistle that he does not do in all the other epistles. He gets very up close, very personal, and he mentions and lists a total of six men, troublemakers, whom he warned Timothy to beware of. Now again, I want you to remember that 2 Timothy was written two years before Paul's own demise, so he's pulling out all stops. And the six men that he mentioned here, the first pair, was Phygelus and Hermogenes. And these two guys turn away from Paul. And the word here that's used is the word apostropho, where we get the word apostrophe, which means to have a break. And this word also means that they had somehow perverted the ways of God and they departed from Paul and all that Paul represents. Now names are very important in the Bible because they give us an indication and the nature of the type of the person. And Phygelus, means a fugitive, a runaway, and Hermogenes means born of Hermes, a Greek deity. Now, not only did these two men, who seem to be fellow workers of Paul, depart from Paul, and uh, we're told that all in Asia, this is Asia Minor, made a break from Paul. Paul is in dungeon, and he's now old, and he's now forgotten by everyone that was under his apostleship. And, and, and this happens when you're, and you're old and you're out of sight, out of mind, and they were all breaking away from Paul and it must have brought the apostle great anguish. He's in prison and he's hearing all these groups splinter away from him. And that seems to be the story of every godly man in the Bible that towards the end of their lives, they experience betrayal, much betrayal and detachment from those that were part of their network because now they're old and they're frail and the people want someone who is trendier and smarter and stronger. And when Moses, remember what is at the age of 120, he was brought up to the mountain to die alone. Not a single person of his generation was alive. He was the last remaining survivor of that generation. I think Numbers is one of the saddest chapters, chapters 20, I'm so sorry, is one of the saddest chapters in the Bible because the chapter starts with the funeral service of Moses' sister, Miriam, and it ends with the funeral of Moses' older brother, Aaron. In one chapter, two of the people he loved most died. And we live with people in life, but when we die, my friends, you die alone. I keep reminding the people around me, I cannot be with you on the day of judgment. When you stand before God, you stand alone before God. 
Amen. You live life with people, but you stand alone with God on judgment day. At the end of Moses' life, he was brought up to the top of Pisgah where he was shown a vision of the promised land, but he was not permitted to enter in. I tell you, the path of a leader gets very narrow as they come toward the end of their lives. Jesus, at the end of his life, only had a handful of disciples who stuck with him all the way. But listen, he did not come to be popular, amen. He, each time his popularity soared in a location, he got up and he left. I tell you, this has to be something that has been to be ingrained in the heart of every believer. John the Baptist died alone in prison. I can go on and on and on, but I'll tell you this, the life of a leader is always very narrow towards the end of his race. The second pair was Hamanias and Philetus. And the Bible tells us that they were preaching error in the church. They were preaching that the resurrection was already past. Obviously, they refused to be corrected. There was no repentance. And I've warned people in this nation to, to change, to repent from the things that they're saying. But oftentimes, these people are so ingrained in a false teaching, in a false era, that they will not change the position. They will not change, and there's no repentance. And notice that it says that their message will spread like cancer. Tell me, how does cancer spread? It spreads very quickly. Isn't it interesting that error and bad teaching always spread faster than the truth? Again, Hemenaeus means the God of weddings in Greek mythology. In an early epistle to Timothy, Paul delivered Hemenaeus and Alexander to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now this phrase, deliver to Satan, listen, is an apostolic function. You cannot do this. It's an apostolic responsibility. And basically, it is to ask God to remove his protection in order that Satan can deal with the person physically, but not eternally, amen. He has no power over us eternally, but there are occasions when the protection of God can be lifted over a person so that Satan can deal with the person physically that they may come to repentance, amen. The next person is Demers, and I'll circle back to Demers in a few moments because a lot of people like Demas start amazingly well, but they end up terribly. And then there's this man called Alexander the Coppersmith. Paul said Alexander, which, whose name means a defender of men, by the way, the Coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. He says to Timothy, you must beware of him for he greatly resisted our words. Here is a Paul, a, a father, warning his son about a troublemaker in the church. Now, when it came to Alexander, Paul was very personal, very personal, because this guy opposed Paul greatly and he did much harm to Paul, and I'm assuming physical harm. And so Paul wants Timothy to beware of this guy. And I don't for a moment think that Paul was being petty because it's people like Alexander who can tear the church apart, and especially if they're given a position of authority. Now, I'll circle back to this man in a few moments. But let me just come to Demas for a few moments. Here is a man who started off really well and ended up losing his inheritance and salvation. Demas is mentioned three times in the Bible. The first time he's mentioned in Philemon, chapter one and verse 24, where he's referred to as Paul's fellow worker. Then the second time in Colossians chapter four, where his name is just mentioned. Paul says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greets you. Now notice Luke is beloved, 
but nothing is said of Demas. But the third time he's mentioned in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 10, Paul says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Theologians tells us that this gives us the implication that he left the faith, not just break away from Paul, but he left the faith. Now Demas, listen, Demas was not the only one who left Paul. There were others who broke away from Paul's apostolic covering to go on and set up their own networks, their own ministries, and this is always painful uh, to the pastor, obviously, to the apostolic leader. I thank God that in the last 33 years of full-time ministry, 26 years pastoring Cornerstone, I thank God that this has never happened here in Cornerstone. There was a group about 10, 15 years that we sent out to start a church. Uh, that group has become the City Church. It's, it's, uh, it's doing well today. We're very, very happy, very glad to hear of a good report. But Demas was different. He left Paul for the world. If you know the chronology of these letters, they were all written in the span of two years. So in this short two-year period, we have a fellow worker of Paul digressing to forsaking Christ. How in the world did this ever happen? How in the world can a man serving beside the greatest apostle who had ever lived in two years turn away from the faith and now is forsaken Christ? How in the world does that happen? Do you think it happened overnight? No, sir. It was years of neglect. Years of neglect. There was a subtle shift. You know, these things don't just happen overnight. A man doesn't wake up in one day in the morning and says, you know what, I think I'm going to divorce my wife. No, sir. Years of neglect, anger, hatred, bitterness, harsh, hardness of heart that has not been dealt with that led to the moment of decision and reckoning. There's always a reason. It could be sin. It could be rebellion. It could be a digression of prayer. You stop praying. You stop fellowshipping. You stop worshipping. You stop reading the Bible. Bitterness, hatred, resentment, and a degenerate heart that refused to obey and listen. Do you know that Jesus boiled all divorce down to one thing, hardness of man's heart. I know this is an unpopular teaching. I've let people walk out of the church before because I say this, but I will not, I will not recant for speaking the truth. I will tell you this, and I know that there are some people here who perhaps have been divorced. The Lord can forgive you, and He has forgiven you. But I tell you this, every, I am absolutely convinced that every Christian marriage can be resolved. I believe with all my heart that every Christian marriage, no matter how bad the circumstances are, can be restored. And the key is tenderize my heart, oh God. Because the problem, Jesus narrowed down it to one problem, the hardness of men's heart. Boy, if you're willing to humble yourself and say to your spouse, look, honey, I'm so sorry. It was me. I made the mistake. I will do whatever is right to get this relationship on the right track. If you will humble yourself, if you will tenderize your heart, I tell you this, God can preserve your marriage. Hallelujah. You say, but pastor, there's no more spark. Then call me. I'll spark the message. <laughs> Come on. The word Demas means popular. It gives you an idea of what Demas was really like. I suspect his name gives us a clue on his downfall. If you, want, if you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then you have to make a deliberate choice to be unpopular, not unpleasant. Some people are not popular because they're so nasty. But there is a point in our lives where we have to deliberately sometimes extricate from the masses I tell you this, I'm learning to love the wilderness. 
I'm learning to love the hidden life. I can live all my life in the Bible College of Wales and hide myself in the blue room and live there contentedly. I can live with Jesus. I tell you this. There were days that I've just been in the Bible College of Wales. I've just been alone in my room and I say to the Lord, Lord, I can live with you for all eternity, just you and me. I of course, I don't tell that to my wife, but, uh, but I, I can. I love Jesus and He fascinates me. He completes me. Woo! I'm never alone. I never feel lonely. I'm never alone. And I feel this sense of the Lord's covering and, and protection. And we've got to learn more and more to, to uh, make sure that the focus of popularity is not an obsession in our lives because this insularity can sometimes be incestuous, almost incestuous. And then it becomes pride and pride inflates our view of our own importance and blinds us to reality. Did you know King Herod in the Bible was basking in the popularity of the people? They kept on saying the voice of a man, the voice of a God, the voice of a God, not the voice of a man. And he was basking in that popularity. An angel of the Lord comes, strikes him dead. Hallelujah. Woo! Amen. Bam. And he died a terrible death. If you seek to be popular with the world, then the love of the Father cannot be in you because you're always seeking the approval of men. You've got to choose what you want. God's plans for your life is often in conflict with the world. You've got to choose between being popular or being well-pleasing to God because they're almost mutually exclusive. Paul says in Galatians 1.10, For do I now persuade men or God do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I'm no longer a born servant of Christ. I'm here not to please you, amen? You think you pay me just so that you can be pleasing you to you? No, sir. I mean, I came to full-time long before any one of you here. I served the Lord in full-time ministry 33 years. And when I came, you heard my testimony the last time. My salary was 800 bucks. We sold our house. We sold everything we could sell just to survive the first five years in full-time ministry. And I'm glad that my wife stuck with me all through the years and we were here and we didn't choose to please man, we chose to please God. 33 years, nothing has changed, my friends. Nothing has changed. I'm not here to please man, amen. I'm not here to please man. Now, I just want to say that at the starting line, it's always very crowded, but it's very sparse at the finishing line. You must endure hardship if you're going to finish strong. To finish well, Progression is the key, not digression. The same thing happened with a man called John, the beloved apostle. When John wrote his third epistle to primarily address a problem elder, watch this, in the church who rose up against Paul, uh, John, I'm so sorry, and opposed John's apostleship and the whole church was in jeopardy of being torn apart. And John does exactly what Paul does. He names this elder. His name was Diotrephus. And his name is interesting because Diotrephus means nourished by Zeus. And Zeus was a false god. And this man was being energized and being motivated by a source other than the Holy Spirit. For some of you, it may be the God of Mammon. For some of you, it may be the God of ambition or the God of fame or popularity rather than the Holy Spirit. About 20 years ago, I was in Jericho in Israel. There was a spirit of prophecy. We were having breakfast with a group of prophets uh, in, in, in Jericho when the Spirit of the Lord came and we started prophesying. And one prophecy was this. Now listen, this is, no, uh, this is not an attack on anybody, but listen to this prophecy. The prophecy went something like this. And the Lord says, for I am against the God, 
the household God of America and the household God is coffee. And the Lord says, and this is the prophecy, because my people can get up in the mornings without me, but they can't get up without coffee. You know how many people, Christians, who will tell me, Pastor Young, I cannot start the day without coffee, but they sure can start the day without Jesus. My wife and I, we looked at each other and I made a decision 20 years ago. I said to my wife, I said, let's make a decision not to drink coffee. We were coffee drinkers. 20 years later, we've not touched a single drop of coffee. If you want to make a decision, go all the way with Jesus, my friends. Don't play with Him, amen. Make a decision and stay committed to it. Hallelujah. But you can drink your coffee. God's not against it. As long as it's not your source of strength. Amen. I get up in the morning, I love a cup of tea. I make a cup of tea with honey every morning. But I don't drink my tea until I have devotions. Hallelujah. No breakfast before devotions. Amen. Psalm 62 is a psalm of David. And it's been, it's been called the own, you only psalm. Four times David said this in the psalm, you only are my salvation, you only are my rock, you only are my defense. I wait only on you. He must only be the source of our nourishment. Now, Diotrephes was a usurper. He was tearing the flock apart, dividing the church, breaking the harmony. And to protect the flock, John had to write this epistle to call out this guy. And that had to be done or the church would deteriorate into a dysfunctional, autocratic hangout led by a nut job, man. So sometimes confrontation is necessary to maintain the peace and harmony. I've seen churches, thousands of people that in just a matter of a year, dwindling to a few hundred people because of contention and division and I will never allow it to happen here in Cornerstone. We will never allow a Diotrephus to rise up and, uh, and manifest in this church, amen. Every single leader in the church must be shrouded with humility and servanthood, hallelujah. Now in those days when an epistle was read, the whole church would assemble and listen to the epistle being read out loud. Can you imagine getting a letter, not from any other apostle, but from one of the original 12, and not just the original 12, from John the Beloved, for goodness sake, come on. And so these epistles were sent to address issues. And John was not mincing his words in this epistle. It was short, but bam, it went like a double-barrel cannon. And after the smoke was cleared, everyone realized that dear old John was not trying to tiptoe over a very sensitive issue in the church because it had to do with someone within the church who was very prominent. So these guys were not afraid to confront. Let me just tell you this. Third John 9, this is what he said. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephus, who loves the pre preeminence among them, does not receive us. I think I have the scriptures, right? Therefore, if I come, I will call to his mind, to mind his deeds, which he does, fretting with us, against us, with malicious words, not contending with that. He himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. The first thing I want you to be aware of is that there are people in the church that sometimes want pre preeminence, you know. They want to be seen, they want to be heard, they, they want to be in the upfront. And, um, and Jesus warned of the leaven of the Pharisees and the, and, the, and the leaven of Herod, which by the way, is the religious and political spirit. And I tell you this, I hate the religious spirit and I hate the political spirit. We will never allow this political spirit to ever divide the church here in Cornerstone. Uh, I, was, uh, I was told in a church in Singapore just recently that in the constitution of this particular church, if you attend services for four Sundays, you have the right to vote at the AGM. 
And you know, people left the church but attend the church services four Sundays a week so that at the AGM they can come and make trouble for the pastor. What kind of Christianity is that? What kind of Christians are you if you do things like this? We have to watch and make sure these things never have a foothold in the church. Amen. Jesus said, beware of the scribes. They like to go around with long robes. Just so you know, the Lord's not impressed when we put on spiritual garments to distinguish ourselves above the laity. We don't need to wear collars, have cassocks or pulpit robes to distinguish ourselves. Come on. They love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at the feasts. Why? Because it makes them feel important. For years, my number one prayer, when I get up in the morning, 4.45 every day, I get down on my knees, my first prayer is this, Lord, I humble myself before you. I pray that, Lord, I will never be wise in my own eyes, that you would keep me small in my own eyes, that, Lord, I will never have an exaggerated a, a picture of myself. And I do this every single morning. Is my first prayer of the day. I humble myself. And I always say to the Lord, bring me lower, Lord. And uh, after years of praying that prayer, I thought I was a humble man. You always think that you are humble until God shows you how proud you are. So I was in Wales just a few days ago, actually. And I know that this is a sensitive story. I'm going to be very delicate and sensitive about telling this story. But I was invited by a pastor to visit his church. And I wanted to, you know, connect with the local people. And so I said, I'll come. Wanted to bring me to his valley, you know, this beautiful valley uh, in, 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 in central Wales. And so I said, okay, I'll come. And he came and picked me up. We, he drove and he was telling me about the church. I realized that he was a, it was a very small church, very small church, right? And so we got to the service. I sat down and, uh, you know, one or two people said hello. And that's it about it. Small church, 20, 25 people. And the service started and I'm sitting down there and I'm waiting for them just to introduce me. I don't need to, I wasn't there to speak. I was there and I just thought maybe they will introduce me. At least everybody knows, listen, I, I'm Chinese. You guys are all white, you know. They know that I'm not from the, from the area. But he goes, gets up and he preaches. He doesn't welcome me. He doesn't introduce me. I was like totally invisible and I was sitting down and my face was getting red and I was getting angrier and angrier and the pride was rising up. I, I felt the spirit of humiliation like I never felt before and he didn't say one thing about me. He didn't say, we have a pastor here from the Bible College of Wales. Just want to welcome him to our service. That's all I wanted, just to be welcome, just to be uh, acknowledged. He didn't say anything and then bit a bit, bit a bit, bit bam, the service is over. He closed service and I'm sitting down there and I'm like, what just happened? And I walked out in the, and I stood outside for 15 minutes in the freezing cold and nobody came to say hello to me, not one person. And I'm thinking, Lord, what's wrong with this church? What's wrong with these people? You know, they don't need, do they know who I am? Wow. Uh, you know what I was thinking? I was thinking, Lord, we have 300 cell groups in Cornerstone and the smallest one is bigger than the whole church. All these thoughts were going in my head. And I'm thinking, how dare they treat me this way? About 20 minutes later, he comes up. Oh, Pastor, there you are. I said, yeah, sure. I've been waiting for you. I went into the car with him. I couldn't take it anymore. I exploded. I really exploded. I said, has the Welsh culture deteriorated so much that you don't even know how to honour your guests? And I'm not just any other guest. I am the director of the Bible College of Wales. <laughs> Oh, boy, I just lashed out at him. I just, 
No, I really gave it to him, man. He felt so bad. It wasn't his fault. He was just ignorant. You know, it wasn't his fault. He wasn't, he wasn't doing to snub me, all right? And so I, I but I, I couldn't take it. I, I just lashed out. And you know, the Holy Spirit rebuked me so hard. He said, do you not pray for me every day to bring you lower? He said, I created this circumstance to bring you here just so that you know how proud you really are. My goodness, I repented. I repented. You know, I went to his house for lunch and his wife cooked me a beautiful meal. And he, you know, I was still seething with anger. And he said, I'm going to pray for grace. I said, no, sir, you're not going to pray. I'm going to pray. You didn't give me a chance to speak. Now I want to speak. I want to pray over the... I was besides myself. But I came home and I thought to myself, that was the best day in my whole trip because the Lord showed me just what kind of a man I really was. I wanted some preeminence, you know. I wanted to be acknowledged and to be acknowledged. I wanted to be recognized. How many of you know we're all like that? We all, you know, have this thing in us and, you know, and every day, you know, can, can you imagine the deception I was? Because I hear Sia thinking, God, how humble I am. I said, all these cornerstone people, they don't know how their pastor, how humble their pastor is. <laughs> True. And it took the Holy Spirit to expose this uh, pride that's still in my heart. So I'm going lower, my friends. I am, every day, I make a deliberate attempt, go lower. Tell you, go lower, tell you, go lower, go lower, go lower. Amen. Now, the prophets in the Old Testament were polemics. They were strong. They were godly men. They were unafraid to confront and make no mistake that the last line of defense in Israel was not the Israeli army. It was the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts that was mediated through the prophets. As long as Joshua was around, Israel was undefeatable. As long as David was around, Israel was safe. As long as Samuel the prophet was around, the Philistines could not mess with Israel. They tried several occasions. They could not could not have a breakthrough. As long as Hezekiah was around, Jer Jerusalem was safe. As long as Elisha was around, the Syrians could never outwit and have the upper hand against God's people. They were the true protectors of Israel. It is the same with the New Testament. Here's a scripture that I want to read to you. Acts chapter 20, Paul is giving his farewell address to the Ephesian elders. He says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves men. Listen, it's going to come from outside. It's also going to come from within. Men from yourselves will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Watch therefore and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Why was Paul so emphatic about this? Because he was a true shepherd that loves the people and a true shepherd does not forsake the sheep when he sees the wolves coming. I tell you this, my friends, in the last 33 years as pastor, first of Badok Christian Center and then Cornerstone. Do you know how many people I had to fend the church from? I had gangsters in the early church coming to the church and asking for protection money. Asking for protection money. Fierce guys, looking guys, gangsters, trade members, trade, uh, tr trade, tried, tried, not trade, tried, tried, tried members coming in my office and demanding protection money. And I would say, I don't need your protection. Inside, I was trembling with fear, right? But I, would, I had to be strong in the Holy Spirit, you know. And I said, if I need any protection, God's my protection. I had to fend off people threatening me with knives, literally violence. And over the years, the Lord has strengthened the church. Do you know how many 
husbands I have spoken to who beat their wives and said, why don't you pick somebody your own size? <laughs> I said that, but I was trembling, of course, you know. <laughs> don't know if they would hit me. <laughs> yeah? I tell you this because as long as Paul was around, those wolves didn't mess around the church. Amen. They knew they had a shepherd there who would gladly lay his life down. And when you find somebody who would gladly lay his life down for the people they love, you don't want to mess with such a person. I saw a powerful illustration of this. Uh, showed the picture about two years ago, if you remember, a sheep covered in blood and, uh, and, um, the, and while protecting the, 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 a dog covered in blood while protecting the sheep. And the picture shows a sheep gently comforting him. A moving picture because it reveals that regardless of how strong how emotionally tough a leader is. I tell you, we often get hurt protecting the ones we love and showing them some care goes a long way. Really. Showing them some care. You know, I'm telling you, sometimes after preaching, you know, you give your heart out and I just come back from a long distance, jazz, like you give your heart out at the end of the preaching and you look in your handphone and sometimes people write to criticize your preaching. I mean, it's like, you know, which world, which planet do you come from, you know? And I, I want to just listen, I, I want to be an encourager. Every time somebody leads in worship in my church, at the end of the service, go up, that was a great job. Every time somebody preaches in my church, at the end of the service, go up. It's a, you get, did a great job, amen. Somebody leads, yeah, you did a great job today, chairing the meeting. We need to encourage more, amen. Paul also warned about opposition from within. He said, from amongst yourself. In one of our congregations, our, our, our uh, language congregations, a few years, a couple of years just during the COVID, there was a, this guy that came to speak and he was very charismatic, very animated preacher and they liked him very much. And they invited him several weekends to preach the church. But what we did not know was during the week, he would go around to all our church members getting their phone numbers to ask them to join them in this own new church that he was start, starting. You know what we call people like that? A thief! They don't steal money, but they steal people. Amen. And I said to my, I warn all my pastors, be careful of people like that, you know, people that come to the church and all they want is all the email addresses of all the church members because they want donations, they want support. And you know, you ask me, we will support you. You don't have to go behind our backs, amen? Come on, Pastor Young, preach it, hallelujah. In 1 Kings chapter 2, we find David, this is, this is the, the most important part, I love this part of the, the sermon. We find David in the final stages of his life, but before his departure, he summons his son Solomon to give him a few final instructions. And those instructions had to do with several men who had been a terrible thorn in David's life. Two men in particular, Joab and Shimei. And those two guys were a pain in the neck in David's life. And so David says to Solomon, take care of business. Make sure you don't let their gray hairs go down into the grave in peace. Now, if you think that David was just being petty or personal, you are dead wrong. Because there's something in the nature of rebellion that if you don't deal with it, it will come back to deal with you. And God hates rebellion. The two sins that He hates most is rebellion and idolatry. Why rebellion? Because in heaven there was one. When an angel tried to usurp the throne of God Himself, 
And he led a rebellion and one third of all the inhabitants of heaven followed this rebellious angel. Job was a destabilizing force in Judah. And as much as David tried, could not remove him because Job had two more brothers and they were well-known, renowned military leaders in Israel. And that clan was a very powerful clan. And if David tried to remove Joab, there would be civil war. And David would not risk it because the casualties would be too high. So David had to bid his time and bear this thorn all his life. Joab murdered two generals of Israel that sought to make peace with David and almost single-handedly destroyed everything David was trying to establish in Israel. So David had to handle the situation very delicately or there would be untold consequences. But before David passed on, he instructed his son Solomon to deal with Joab. By this time, Joab's, Joab's clan and political influence had weakened. He was an older man, but he still wielded a lot of political influence. And so unless Solomon cut off the snake, at its head, it will continue to fester like a, like a sore. And the moment David dies, the first thing Solomon did was to take care of business and assassinate. Well, I don't like the word assassinate. He removed all those guys from the kingdom. And the result was in 1 Kings chapter 2 of 16, thus the kingdom was established in the hands of Solomon. For the sake of heritage and future posterity, we need to deal with the present. Amen. Catherine Booth says, if we are going to better the future, then we must disturb the presence. All these sermons, like last week, uh, the one that I preached the last time, and when, you, when I was back here in Singapore, and this sermon has to do with what a post-YTY cornerstone is going to look at, like, amen. I want to make sure that our future for this house is secure long after I'm God, amen. I want to make sure that our pastors are in line. I want to make sure that the church is well protected, and I want to make sure that the future of Cornerstone is secure. And I'll do anything to prepare this church for the next generation. And if we have to remove some people for the sake of the unity of the body and for the sake of the harmony of the body, trust me, we will not shun away from doing this because this is the desire of every godly pastor. He wants to see harmony and protection in the house. Amen. One of my, my favorite all-time show, really, it's not one of my favorite, it is my favorite all-time show, is The Godfather, part one. There's a scene where the Godfather is about to hand over his entire crime syndicate to his son, Michael Caglione. And he reminds his son to take care of business and purge out the traitors or the, he would never survive. He says, come here, come here, Michael. Let me tell you, you got to deal with this problem. You got to take care of the traitors. At different seasons in our lives, I'll close with this. Different aspects of the Godhead are more, I guess, you know, you, you emphasize more than others. Right? When I was young, certain aspects of the Godhead were emphasized more than... At this stage in my life, I tell you what are the two most important aspects for me, for Cornerstone. The fatherhood of God, and number two, protection. Protection is a big part of His covenant with us. The Lord protects what is His. He ring fences what belongs to Him. And He's promised that He will protect us and he's not a man that he should lie. Just read the Psalms again and again. His promise is given to us. David could say, you're my refuge, my rock, my fortress, my high tower, my deliverer, my shield, my defender. All that to reveal that God is our protector and that his protective instincts over us are wonderful because he is a father. 
And the nature of a father is he protects. I love my family. I will protect my family even at the cost of my life. And I will protect this church. I love this house. Amen. The greatest prayer in the Bible is recorded in John 17. It's the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And he's praying. Did you know that three, two of the three prayers for us has to do with protection? Keep them in your name, O God. And sanctify them in your word. Your word is truth. And keep them from evil. Two of the three prayers have to do with protection. That is how Jesus prays for us daily. The believer's prayer is in Matthew chapter 6. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thank you. Listen, I tell you this. You should pray this prayer and the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17. Every day. These are the two great prayers. The most apostolic and the most Melchizedekian prayer in the entire Bible are these two prayers. And then Jesus told us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver, deliver us from the evil one. All that is designed for protection. Here's some good advice. Pray those both prayers. Amen. And then in Psalms 103, verse 1 and 5, a scripture that I recite every morning. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. What are the benefits? Forgives all my iniquities, heals all my diseases, redeems my life from the destruction, crowns me with loving kindness and tender mercy, satisfies my mouth with good things. The word crown, the, the fourth prayer, has to do with protection because the word crown is the same word, encircle, and that word always has to do with protection. Encircle me with your songs of deliverances. Amen. Then it says in um, Job, Job had a hitch hedge of protection around him. Satan could not touch him because he was protected. And then another psalm that I recite every morning is Psalms uh, 34. Uh, the first 15 verses, bless the Lord of my soul and all that, uh, no, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And then down at the verse 15, I think it says that uh, the angel of the Lord encamps around those that fear him. Again, this has to do with protection. I want you to know that there's a whole myriad of angels that watches over us and protects the heirs of salvation. I close with this. Gene Edwards. Can we all stand, please? I'm done. Gene Edwards wrote a book many years ago called The Tale of Three Kings. If you've not read it, you should. It's, it's allegory, but it's wonderful. It's the story of King David, King Saul, and King and, and um, Absalom. And what Gene Edwards says that there is a potential in every one of us to be either David, Saul, or Absalom. So sometimes we are in leadership, we think we are a David, but really we're a Saul because we're controlling, manipulative, fearful, always re responding with harshness and anger. That's a Saul. Or sometimes we think we're David, that we're being persecuted by a Saul, but really we're an Absalom trying to usurp David's authority. Come on, that's so good, right? And so you gotta watch yourself because Sometimes you are a David, sometimes you might be a Saul, or sometimes you might be an Absalom. You really got to guard your heart because out of your heart flows all the issues of life. Amen. Here's what I'm going to close with. David's, Paul is in prison. It's two years before his death. He's all alone. Sometimes visitors would come. They gave him, the Romans gave him freedom to meet people. But really he was all alone in that dungeon awaiting execution. Did you know what the last word of the book of Acts is? Do you know what St. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, used as the last word to describe the, the journeys of Paul? And this is the word, unhindered. Unhindered. It gave us the picture, Paul is in prison, 
He's in chains. But oh, the Word of God, the Gospel cannot be in chains. It's unhindered. Amen. It's unhindered. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of the progress of the Gospel because God was going to write chapter 29 of the book of Acts. He's going to write chapter 30 and chapter 31 and continues this amazing story of the Gospel of Jesus Christ till everyone has heard the Gospel, till every creature has heard the Gospel. Then the end shall come. Father, it's my prayer today that you would bless this house, Lord. Lord, what, who am I? And what is my house that you brought us this far? And yet, Lord, in our wildest imaginations, we could have never dreamt that when we started this church with just a small group of young people, never could we have dreamt that this is where you've taken us and you've not brought us this far just to bring us this far. And I thank you, God, that you're beginning to unveil to us the greater eternal purposes of God. And as they unfold, we are in awe of all that you have done. I'm very grateful, Lord. I know that in my own strength, my own ability, I could have never even managed one-tenth of what this is all about. But here we are, Lord. We humble ourselves before you and we thank you. My prayer, Lord, is that long after my wife and I are gone, that you will give this house shepherds after your own heart, Lord. You'll give this house true shepherds that will defend the sheep, Lord. That the wolves will be kept at bay, Lord. And that the people like Hymenaeus and, and, and Philetus and Alexander and all these will not ever rise in this church, oh God. That, that Lord, you will give the leadership strength and courage, Lord, to confront, deal with sin, deal with rebellion, deal with pride, deal with preeminence, deal with popularity in Jesus' name, Lord. I am concerned, Lord, for the future of the house of Cornerstone. And I pray, Lord, that you, Lord, will make me a promise that you will give us security for the future and that you will secure the, the, the destiny of the church, not just in the next generation, but for all eternity, Lord. The Lord gave a promise to David, gave a promise to Samuel that their houses will last forever. If you read the stories of men of God like William Booth, the Lord said to William Booth that the Salvation Army will continue right into eternity. I believe that that is a great promise that God wants to give to us today as well. That this house, this house would be one of the great noble houses of eternity. So Lord, let your presence be established here in this house and remove everything, God, that would offend. Remove everything that might try to divide and, uh, and tear the, the flock apart. And I pray that, Lord, you will raise up shepherds after your own heart, Lord, who will make sure that the future of Cornerstone is secured for eternity. Now the blessing of God the Father, the blessing of God the Son, and the blessing of the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you now and forevermore. And everybody said, Amen. Let's give God a big praise. listen to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.